you're new to MCC, my name is Don Raymond. I'm the assistant pastor here. Pastor Travis is enjoying some family time. And I'm going to be concluding our series on prayer that we've entitled Plug and Pray. And I don't know about you, but I found this series really beneficial for my own soul. And as I think about praying desperate prayers and praying big, bold, audacious prayers and praying spiritual prayers. But I thought uh, to conclude the series, we're going to look at another aspect of prayer. And I've entitled the sermon, uh, Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, Pray Authentically. Guns and Roses had no songs about apologies or confessions or anything like that, so y'all got Elton John. Um, Confession is a theme Travis picked up on a few weeks ago that I thought would be good um, to kind of conclude our series with this morning. Because here's the thing about confession, that we're not always the best at confessing our sins before God. Like it kind of gets put down here We might do like a quick, like, Lord, please forgive me because I've done a bunch of bad stuff today that we're not going to think about right now because I really want to get to the petitions part of prayer where I want to ask you for things. But I think that um, when we do that, we are settling for less than what God intends, that God wants us to bring ourselves as we are before him. And today, we're going to look at a really popular passage of the Bible, uh, Psalm 51. So if you want to turn there. Um, And leave that open as we go through the sermon today, because we'll be referencing the passage repeatedly. And that's page 474, if you're going to use the Black Bibles there. And uh, out of reverence for God's Word, let's stand this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us your word. Your word 
is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our past. It guides us where we need to go. It instructs us for our day and our future. And the entrance of your word into our lives gives light and it gives understanding to your people. And God, I pray that this morning that these words would shed light on our lives, that it would give us understanding and teach us how to live for your glory and your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Now, this, this passage is a really popular passage. It may sound familiar to you because songs have been written from it. Um, I could, could sing one if you want. Um, we could also, we do our confessions with this psalm a lot, and it's a really good thing. It's a good psalm to use because it kind of gives us a good picture of what true repentance and confession looks like. It shows us that when we put ourselves before God, as David put himself before God, as we really are, we discover who God really is. And it turns out that theologian John Calvin was right when he said that um, it's impossible to truly know ourselves without knowing God, and it's impossible to know God without knowing ourselves. Now, before moving forward, I just want to say like one quick word of caution. Um, there'll be no profanity or something like that. Um, before moving forward, the danger in using a familiar passage is that passages like this that we kind of know because we say them all the time or hear them sung, they can kind of inoculate us to, to hearing the meaning again. We come at the text with all sorts of presuppositions, experiences with it um, as well. So let's try to like put that out and experience the passage with fresh eyes today. Now the backstory may or may not be familiar to you. The backstory is this, and this kind of shapes our understanding of the whole psalm. The backstory is David is king over Israel. His people are out fighting a battle against the Ammonites, and David is hanging out in Jerusalem for one reason or another. One, I'm not completely sure, but he goes up on his roof one day, and he's up there, and uh, again, I don't know why. It doesn't say in the text. It's, you can read this in 2 Samuel and I would encourage you to do so. But while he's up there, he's, he's surveying, I guess, the land, and he notices a woman is bathing on the top of her roof. And he's kind of tr- attracted by this. He's kind of staring off in the distance, leans, hey, bro, says to his servant, who's that woman over there? He goes, I'm going to go find out. Good. He goes, he comes back, and his servant said, hey, that lady over there is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and her name is Bathsheba. So David, um, this is like a Nicholas Sparks novel, right? David sends like notebook or something. David sends uh, his, his guy to go get Bathsheba and he brings her to him and they sleep together and then she goes away and then t- to add to the complexity of the story, she sends him a little note that says, uh, I'm pregnant. It's kind of messy, right? But it gets worse. So, as if the situation isn't bad enough, David says, ah, this is really, really bad. I've committed adultery. I'm the king. We got to fix this. So he gets Uriah. He sends to Joab, his commander, says, hey, can you send Uriah back here? So Uriah comes back. They exchange some small talk pleasantries about the war. And David goes, oh, you know what? You should go home tonight. Hoping... It doesn't say this explicitly in the text, but it's kind of implied, hoping that he would go home and that he would lay with his wife so that the baby that she's about to have looks like 
his. But he doesn't. He just sleeps on the front door of the palace. He doesn't actually go home. And when David asks him why, Uriah gives some noble speech about how his countrymen are dwelling in booths. How could he go home and lay with his wife? And David, at this point, is like, this is not going according to plan. Plan B. He gets the guy smashed the next day, right? Completely drunk. And then he tries to send him home to his wife. But it just derails and Uriah falls asleep on David's couch. It is David still, this is not working. What am I going to do? Plan C. I'm going to send him back to battle and I'm going to tell Joab to put him on the front lines of the worst fighting in the whole entire land and then have them pull back. And oh, Uriah said, Bathsheba, I'm so sorry about your husband and nobody gets to know about the whole incident. And that's kind of how it goes, except he sends him to battle. Uriah gets killed. Bathsheba weeps. David marries her. And then the passage ends like this in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, The thing David had done displeased the Lord. So he's making all these maneuvers, scheming to get away with his sin. But the thing he did displeased the Lord. But the story doesn't end there. The very next line is, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. So this is the background of this psalm. This messy story filled with murder, adultery, polygamy, all sorts of just, ugh. And yet this is what we get to step into this morning. We're not going to look at everything here, but I think this this prayer that we have in the Psalms can inform us about what true confession and living authentically before God looks like. And we're going to look at three aspects of confession this morning. The first is prayers of confession approach God as he really is, not for who we wish him to be or think he is like. David's plea in verse 1 gets at the heart of this. He says, if you want to look there, have mercy on me, O God. David realized that there is a God and that he is ultimately accountable to him. Remember, David was confronted by Nathan the prophet about what he did. What he did did not escape the eyes of God. David's hand was caught in the proverbial cookie jar of sin And he realized that there is actually no running away from God. All that's left to do is to cry out to him for mercy. He says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, if you've been tracking with the story so far, you might be wondering, uh, Against you, you only... God, have I sinned? Now, if I'm remembering the story right, it seems like you sinned against Uriah, you sinned against Bathsheba, and you sinned against God. What does that mean? Like, against you, you only, I've sinned. And the statement is not a denial of David's sin against other people. It's an actualization that David's sin is ultimately against God. It is an act of cosmic rebellion against the creator of the universe. David realized this, and then he calls out 
to God for mercies. So what we learn from this is that our sin is never just against the people we've sinned against. It's never just against our children when we maybe shouldn't have raised our voice the way we did. It's never against, um, just against our spouse. It's never just against our coworkers. It's never just against the government. It's, our sin is ultimately and truly against God. And David gives us this prayer so that we might pray it to God, have mercy on me. But David doesn't stop there. It's not just a plea for mercy. This cry was an admittance of guilt for wrong. It's also an appeal to God for forgiveness. And this is based on the character of God. David may have had in his, in his memory this passage from Exodus before when God led his people out It said, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So David says, cries out to God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And you hear David's yearning, his continual yearning in the passage, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. David calls out, to God to do what only God can do. That is, be merciful and forgive. And this begins to illuminate how we come to God in the middle of our sin when we have stuff to confess to him. A while back, Trav gave us the image that God is like a father that we run to. So he's a God that is not only angry at sin, but he's a God that also loves and forgives sin. Many of you have children. And I imagine that when your child does something wrong and he, he or she runs up to you with, with shame after they've been caught maybe and says, I'm sorry. And they mean it. You can see the tears welling up in their eyes as they know they've been caught and they know what they did was wrong. They said, I'm sorry. And they came to you. Now, it may not get rid of the consequences of whatever their action is. But you as a parent say, you unforgiven child, go away, get out of my presence. No. You say, oh, I forgive you. And so we're human. We have limits to our love. But we have a very God who's described as love. So when we run to him and confess who we are to him, he forgives. It is who he is. He is a forgiving God who loves us. So we come to him with the confidence of a child running because they've been caught in sin, saying, Dad, Father, forgive me, knowing that we will receive forgiveness and grace because God is a God of love and that in Christ we stand forgiven. So confession not only approaches God for who he is, confession also acknowledges our own sin, which we kind of touched on a little bit, but I want to press into more. Central to confession is actual awareness of who we are and what we've done. Look at what David says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This means that David had a deep, deep awareness of what he was and what he had done. And this sinfulness, this, this kind of confession of sin and admittance of sinfulness is not some trite, petty understanding that, God, I've done something bad 
Um, it was not even a victimization. Oh, God, did you see the circumstances? What was I going to do, God? I mean, they couldn't, people couldn't know that that, uh, that that happened with Bathsheba. I had to take care of it. I'm a victim of my circumstances, God. Can't you see? It wasn't a minimization of his sin either, where he said, God, it really wasn't that bad. David just kind of puts it all out there and says, I've sinned. And he says it this way in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's saying, God, I'm deeply disturbed at what I've done, but what I've done is part of who I am. It comes from who I am at the core of my being. And this truth from the scriptures kind of starts to fly against the world in which we live, and maybe the view that we ourselves would have adopted right? That says, oh, it's just okay. Or goes like this, it's just my personality, right? Have you done that? Just my personality. I'm abrasive by nature. Um, as if we should just get away with our sin, because that's who we are. But David says something else. David said sin, sin isn't just what he did. It was deeply woven into the fabric of his being. It's part of who we are. And he doesn't hide that from him. David is aware that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So he put himself out there. He knew there was a God. David knew that he could run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down, right? So I had to sneak in some Johnny Cash, okay? Um, He doesn't run from his sin. He knows there's a God. He knows he's accountable to him. And he knows the depths of his own heart. And he comes before God as he is. Who he actually is. And he discovers who God is. He's a God of forgiveness. And he's a God of grace. All of this means that you can come before God as you are. You don't have to hide from him. You actually cannot hide from him. What Johnny Cash was, said was true. You can drop the pose. You can be who you are before God. In fact, that's what he wants. One philosopher says, and this is partly true, that man is not what he thinks he is. He is what he hides. Man is not what he thinks he is. He is what he hides. Now, that's partially true. That there are things that we can hide from God that God wants access to, that shape us, and he wants to go there. Look at verse 6 with me. At the beginning part, it said, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Now that phrase, inward being, shares a root word in Hebrew, and that root, uh, with the word that's used to cover in pits of water, elsewhere. I was stumbled on this in my research this week. That So in, in biblical times, if you wanted to defeat an enemy, what you would do is you would go over to their pit of water, their wells, and then you would just fill them in, right? You would get rid of their water supply. Um, all the pits in their land, you would just kind of cover in. Now what's the significance of the psalmist using that phrase that's used to cover pits other places in this section of the Bible? Well, the significance is this, that one commentator says that it's as if David is saying that God wants access to the pits of who we are, the parts of us that we've covered up, the stuff that we don't want others to know about, the things that maybe we're ashamed of, 
the areas of our lives that we don't necessarily want to change or that are hard to change. God wants those things. He wants access to that part of us. See, what are, you, what are the pits in your life? What are the areas that you are afraid to bring before God? Or what are the parts that you've been neglecting to bring before God in your prayers? God wants us to go there. Finally, the last thing we'll say about confession is that it enables us to experience God afresh. Confession liberates us to experience God. The effects of sin are real for David in this passage. The effects of sin for David and for us as well, if you, if you just scan through it, diminish joy, separation from God, inner turmoil. All of these things, his sin has brought upon him. So David calls out to God to do what only God can do. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. A hyssop branch in the Old Testament was a device used for the application of blood for a cleansing offering. You may have read in Exodus chapter 20, before God let out his people of Israel, when they were to slaughter the lamb for Passover, they would dip the hyssop branch in blood and then paint the doorposts with it, um, with blood. And he's saying, God, apply Clean me, God. Clean me. Take that hyssop branch and wipe away my sins. Hide them from your face, O God. And he calls out for God to do what only God can do to clean his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David saying, God, I cannot change who I am. See, a lot of us, we try to change who we are by behavior modification. Oh, I just need to stop doing X. My sin is um, getting angry at my coworkers or something like that. Or my sin is um, I look to porn. Or my sin is I just um, don't spend enough time with my children. The list goes on and on. My sin, my sin. And I just need to stop looking at porn, stop getting angry, and stop doing all this stuff. And yes, you do, but we try to change our hearts and we end up failing. And what David is acknowledging is that I can't change my heart, God. Like, I can't do it. I need you. I need you to change my heart. Create this new spirit within me because I can't do it. And what confession says is that we go before God saying, I can't change my heart. Would you go there, God? Would you start to change me? Would you set your word in there? And would it start to drive out the darkness that I see in my soul? as we try to fight the behaviors that we know are wrong. So we often just lay out planks like that video. I'm just going to change my behavior. We lay out a plank. And our sin is like the truck. It's not going to end well by just changing our behavior. We have to give God the areas of our hearts that we are holding on to. One pastor says this, confession has nothing to do with getting ourselves forgiven. Confession is not a transaction, not a negotiation in order to secure forgiveness. It is the after the last grasp of a corpse, finally admitting that it's dead. Confession is the admittance that I cannot change my heart. When we come before God as we are, we experience who he is, and he renews within us joy, in him, a new spirit within us.
There's a lot more I could say about this prayer. But I want you guys, as we approach our prayers, not to view confession as something to run from, but something to run to. It is a pathway that God has given us that we might experience him at the very depths of our being. He's the God who forgives, who changes broken hearts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, it's the grace of the gospel that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner you are, to the God who loves you. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants you as he are, you are, and he wants to be gracious to you. God wants to be gracious to you. This is what the gospel says. And if you need proof of God's desire to be gracious to you, you look no further than a bloody cross and an empty tomb and the lamb slain from before the foundations of the world so that you might know God, so that you might call out to God, God, cleanse me with that blood so that I may know you, renew joy within me, create in me a new heart. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all